0: Welcome back to the It's Not So Late Show. And today we are joined by Mark Gibson, who is an award-winning magician, who's been featured in the Magic Castle, And you've probably also seen him on Jimmy Fallon. Mark, thank you so much for joining us here today. Thanks for being here. question for you has gotta be, how did you get into magic? Uh, Was there someone or something that inspired you to do this? Kinda, sorta, yeah. So I started magic when I was probably 10 years old.
1: Uh, It all began, my cousin Michael did magic kind of as a hobby. We went to go visit him. Uh, He lives uh, up near San Francisco. And he showed me how to make a coin disappear. It's a very simple sleight of hand, little technique. And that just sparked something in me. And from that day forward, it was just all, all magic all the time. So, uh, that's what started my journey in magic. When I was 13, I found my way to the magic castle in Hollywood, uh, by auditions, by the grace of God was accepted and have now been a headliner there for 13 years. So half my life, uh, has been sent in that one particular place, but I've performed all over the place for a lot of different people. And, uh, yeah, it's just been a great addition to my life.
0: That's awesome. So, in case people don't know, can you talk about the Magic Castle? What is it? I'm sure a lot of people have heard of it, but I don't know if everyone understands what it is.
1: Sure. So, the Magic Castle, I describe it as Top Gun for magicians. <laughs> uh, it's it's very much the uh, the the mecca of North American magic. Uh, it's considered the the greatest showroom or place to perform magic in the world. Uh, there we Thankfully, the castle is, well, when <laughs> obviously it hasn't been open because of the pandemic, but uh, when the castle was operating, we would have performers from all over the world come and fly in and be a part of the shows every single week, no matter when you went. Uh, it's an exclusive club. So you have to be over the age of 21 and invited by a member to even gain access to this place. Uh, so it's very high end. There's, I think, five different bars throughout the place. It's a it's a two hundred year old mansion in the middle of Hollywood. So it's a a block up from Hollywood Boulevard, but it's it. The best I can describe it is uh, if like The Great Gatsby met the haunted mansion. Mm. That's kind of the vibe you're getting here, and it's all the greatest magic across the world. So it's it's been my home very fortunately for half of my life now, and I I love it to pieces. So been there ever since.
0: So I got to ask you a question. So the first time you know you get admitted, what's that like? You walk through the doors for the first time, like. Go through that experience. What's that like? Were you nervous? Were you anxious? Were you just in a state of shock that you like you made it, you know, that's like, you did it. It was
1: a, a, a perpetual moment of disbelief, I could say, and even throughout the, the, the many years I've been there in so many times I go, I, I can't really believe that this is happening. Um, it was very awe-inspiring, A, to even just to go and to be there. So I started when I was 13, which you need to be 21 to even go to the castle, let alone perform there. Uh, But there's a special program within the castle they call it the Junior Society. It's an elite group of young people who have met the merit and ability to perform at the Magic Castle. Uh, So they kind of make special dispensation for the few of us that can go do that. So I was 13, I was the youngest, and I kind of grew up in this place. So the very first my audition was terrifying. That, that was just mind numbing to say the least, just to go out and, and start performing in this place that I've, my heroes performed in this right. place and still do. Uh, their pictures and portraits are all over the walls and it's just, it was remarkably intimidating. Right. Uh, but once you were accepted and you're now a professional entertainer here and you can kind of book your first, the castle books you for weeks at a time. So you are dedicated to a singular room and you do three shows a night, seven days a week. So you just run the whole time. So once you you do that for the first time, first few shows are intimidating, but once you hit a rhythm, you just you, it feels like home.
0: That's cool. So this audition process, what was that like? Because you know, magic's one of those things that it's different for every person, right? It's not like music, you know, where you can miss a note. Maybe you miss a trick or something. But how does that work? How do you audition? you know, what what's the determining factors for who gets in and who doesn't?
1: That's a great question. So for the castle specifically, uh, it's a little different depending upon, if you're like an adult performer coming to audition, or if you're a junior, the junior audition is much more rigorous, uh, because they they kind of make this, if we're going to give you special dispensation to be here, you gotta, you gotta bring it. It's another thing if you're 30 years old, 40 years old, uh, audition, okay, like you can eat, still even just come into the club. So not that we're diminishing the type of magic or the uh, skill level, you still have to meet a very high bar. Uh, but when you're very young, you very much have to meet the merit of those who have been doing this for as long as you've been alive. Uh, so it's, it's a kind of a bigger leap to, to do that. Uh, in terms of, Really what they're looking for, and thankfully, the the gentleman who uh, I auditioned for, the panel of of the junior program, Diana Zimmerman uh, and Bob Dorian, who was the chairman, he unfortunately passed away recently, uh, he was a gentleman I auditioned for in a room full of people. So they put you in what's called the parlors, one of the rooms of the castle, uh, and they just have, I think there was probably 50 people auditioning with me that day. Uh, So I was just one in a vast sea of other magicians uh, of varying skill levels and experience, and they just kind of, one after the other just kind of go for it uh in what they're looking for in the auditions typically it's stage presence uh obviously advanced elements of slights or ability and skill level so it's obviously i'm not going to come out there and go look i'm taking my finger off because (laughs) grandpa does that when you're five so Right,
0: right
1: so there does need to be some metric of okay as a magician i understand what's happening and that is that does take a great deal of skill to do or perform but also can you Perform can 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 you actually be entertaining in doing this? So there's there's a lot of metrics to it.
0: Do they take into account things like originality? For example, if you make up your own routine, like you're making the own trick, because some people there are some magicians who are creators, and there's some who you know who like have creators working for mm-hmm. them. So do they also take that into account, the creators versus those who maybe you know remaking um, mm-hmm. a, a trick or re- using a different technique? Sure, absolutely. So any kind of
1: ingenuity or anything that you can bring to the table, they definitely take that into account. Uh, I actually talked with Bob uh, after my audition in the years that I knew him after uh, a great deal and he would still come and see my shows anytime once I became an adult, an adult performer when I turned 21 and continued on in the castle uh, he would still come and see my shows just randomly sit in the back and he'd give me notes and he'd help me out with it so you never stop learning but the number one thing I think they're looking for is possibility and potential okay so if, if you have a desire and a clear, like obviously my audition when I'm 13 is very different than what I'm doing now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even then, I think what they saw was there's, there's potential, there's possibility here. This, this isn't someone who went down to the magic shop, spent 50 bucks, learned some simple tricks and is now just giving it a shot. They clearly had time and dedication and, and a willingness to learn. Right. So I think that's the number one thing that they're looking for is potential. And the possibility of, of continuing on in this art form,
0: right? So, in talking about learning art form, I believe you're a mentalist, right? Is that what you branded yourself yeah. as? Correct. I want to be I want to be accurate. So, mental. What's been the most difficult type of tricks or the different most difficult aspects to learn and master? Are there certain things that have been a challenge for you over these years? You know, where you're like, oh gosh, you're like that goal is just to like master this. Yes. So, I think one of the things
1: is uh, relinquishing a. I I went in with the same mentality of like, oh, I have to master this thing, or I have to to really achieve a level of expertise in it, which is always a great goal. But I think magic is very much like golfing. Um, No one will ever master it. No one's ever got a hole in one every single time. Like there's really no formula to it. The best you can strive for is to be engaging and entertaining as consistently as you possibly can. And the medium you do that through is magic. So when you get into like technicality and like slights, for example, magic kind of goes in the opposite direction in the sense of the the better you do something, it looks like nothing's happening. Mm -hmm. Magic is one of the very rare art forms that the process is intended to be hidden. Uh, I could watch a musician or a guitarist, for example, and just playing a beautiful piece of music, but I can see how incredibly dexterous and wow, that's I can see the process happening in front of me. Uh, With a magician, the opposite is true. Uh, in many ways, the better you are, it's meant to look like nothing's happening. Right. So you may spend 40 hours collectively on one simple move wow. that people may never see and aren't intended to see. Right. So, so it's, a, it's a tricky metric to, to find. With other magicians, obviously, the, the ideal is to make it look like nothing's happening. Right. So if you can get your act down to the point, the best compliment I ever received was a, a fellow magician came to me after a show and said, I love your act because there's no moves. Wow, nothing happened like, like the, the point a to b the streamline to that seems like it just occurred it, it right. didn't seem to be oh well it probably happened when you did that fancy shuffle or it probably happened when you put your hand in your pocket and then did this mm-hmm. weird motion because it shot up your sleeve or it just <laughs> looks like it just occurred which is the the ideal situation audience is leaving going it just happened
0: <laughs> now you perform i know you perform for everyday people performing for magicians is it more difficult when you're performing for magicians knowing that you, that you know they're trying to like dissect every last thing you're doing or you know they're looking for the moves does that add a level of like oh i need to like be or i need to use misdirection or i need to make sure they don't they're not on to me mm-hmm.
1: it's very much a different it, it, it's kind of a different beast entirely. Uh, one of the best analogies that I've heard that I apply to magic is good chess players can think up to 20 moves ahead, mm. but the best chess players think only one move ahead, but it's always the right move.
0: Right.
1: So doing magic is very much the same way. If I'm approaching to people who likely have never seen a magician before in their life that the effects that I do for them are going to be very different than what I do for magicians. Mm -hmm. So sometimes when I perform for magicians for example I do what's called mentalism which is kind of psychological magic. Mm -hmm. Uh, I will kind of leave breadcrumbs going down a particular known method as to how something's done. So say for example um, if I have someone pick a card and then I read their minds and I tell them what card they picked Uh, say the method for that would be you just have a deck of all the same cards. That's one way to do it. Uh, But I know magicians know that method. So Mm -hmm. when I do it, I'm gonna use a normal deck, but maybe do some sleight of hand to to ascertain what the card is or some psychological trickery. So the the, the trick then becomes, hey, pick a card, think about it. And everyone's gonna go, oh, okay. They're all the seven of spades. But when I go, it's the queen of hearts and then spread out the deck and they're all different. Oh, wow. Wait, (laughs) so I'm, I'm tricking magician thinking. Whereas if you've never seen magic before, it just looks exactly like it normally would. So right. it's, it's a different kind of thinking that you kind of need to go across. I don't perform for magicians that often. I mean, I, I'm, I'm very open in the magic community of like, I will talk about my act or I'll um, market my tricks. So I'll sell them to other magicians if they want to learn them. I'll lecture from time to time. Uh, and that's always a great deal of fun. But uh, ma- magician thinking and non-magician thinking are kind of two very different beasts.
0: I think people don't realize that that goes on too, right? People think that you know magicians, you for example, like even like you or like the ales, like the world-renowned, like you know, like the David Copperfield. They think they just go up, do a show, go home. No, but there's so much that goes on behind the scenes. They're making the tricks. They are lecturing. You know. So, what is your favorite part of magic, other than the actual delivery of the performance? Since there is so much that you do. There is a
1: lot, there is a lot. I would say, and the reason I've gravitated to mentalism is I'm deeply interested in the psychology that goes on behind mm-hmm. magic. And there's so many things to take something that is inherently simple and render it astonishing a- and how you get there. Um, a great example is I, for many, many years, I was a restaurant magician, meaning there was a, a mm-hmm. when I was in college, there was a small mom and pop shop called Mama D's, uh, the outdoor Italian food spot and people would wait for a long time and they'd bring them beer and bread and everything. And my job was to perform for people as they waited for tables, Mm -hmm. just to mainly keep them there and keep them entertained and keep them happy. And over the four something years that I did that, you started to see the words that you would use or how you guided people to do things in order to create an effect, obviously never occurred to people. But when I would talk to magicians about it, it was very interesting. Um, I would do magic, like for children, for example, um, there's something called sponge balls. Very, oh, very easy. Oh, so, yeah. Exactly. They're little colorful balls and you can put them yep. in your hand and vanish. For kids, they're great because they're tactile. They're not cards. I don't have to know what they are. It's just the thing goes in here and now it's gone or it appears in my hand or something like that. Right. Uh, one of the most challenging things that you can do is uh, in, give a child that young instructions. So for example, hey, buddy, hold out your hand, put the ball in your hand, now close it. Mm -hmm. That sounds easy, but it's very tricky because you're a stranger. I don't know who you are. I might be intimidated by this. I'm just having fun. You're four years old. You're just kind of wandering about. So how do you do that? Little clever tricks So what I would do for a kid is I would say, hey, buddy, hold your hand. I'd say either high five. High five me. I'd say, hold your hand out flat like a table. Good. And i touch their hand. Now, it's very strange, but if a magician ever holds your hand and does that, if I just touch it and move it slightly, you'll freeze in that position. (laughs) because it's, it's it's an unspoken command almost of like, I need this, hold it right there without me saying anything. (laughs) So when I put the ball on their hand, I say, don't let it fall. So now the ball is going to sit there and they're not going to move their hand because in the past they do that. They look at it. They drop it on the floor. They squish it. They, they're kids. They they're interested, but how do I get beyond that without telling them what to do? I say, hold your hand out flat and I move it a little bit. So they don't move. And I go, don't let it hit the ground. And then they hold their hand there. I go, very good. Now I can pick up the ball, put it back. And now it turns into two or things like that. uh, And especially on stage. And what I do now is called mentalism. It's it's all psychologically based. Uh, That is deeply rooted in a great deal of influence and persuasion and nonverbal communication and, and kind of how you do that to create it, to make it look like you're running around inside someone's head
0: right now i'm worried now i'm worried that now i'm worried that you're you're like reading my mind without it you're like reading my body language you know. you know my darkest dirtiest secrets so that i've only met you 20 minutes ago no oh. so i have a question so like when you are performing for audiences like a lot of times people there are there's those type of people that are they question it or for example if they like say if you like fan out a deck of cards there's always the one guy who's like can i see the cards how do you handle that when someone kind of changes the way you your delivery is so for example, if someone you pick a card and they're like, Oh, let's look at the card source maybe you have the deck set, or, you know, some whatever okay. it is, and then the mess up. How do you deal with like a situation like that? Sure. So that just kind of comes down to
1: experience. So there there are things that you can't really plan for. So I could rehearse a trick a thousand times in front of a mirror. That's only going to get me so far until I actually do it for people in front of them. That's when you really work out everything that doesn't fly, falls away, and you're left with just the pure essence of an effect. Uh, Restaurant magic taught me that. And any budding magicians who are kind of up and coming, where do I start? I always say strolling magic or restaurant magic, because that is, you're doing it for 100, 200 people all night long, again and again and again, and you're just getting flight time. Uh, so, for example, if someone comes up, say you're doing a card trick, and they go, "Oh, I want to take a look at the cards." Um, if you a don't give them reason to do that, they often won't. A um, big thing that I see magicians do is they'll take them out of the box and they'll hold them very, very guarded, kind of like this, or like do very, mm-hmm. very right. rough shuffles, and then go, "Okay, hold out your finger. Mm-hmm. I'm going to spread through the cards, and then I want you to touch one, but don't look at it yet." Like they they give it very restrictive feel. So and people are very attuned to this. So I think I say people have a natural BS meter. <laughs> so as magicians, our job is to slide underneath that and give permission to do that. Uh, a wonderful performer I know called Apollo Robbins. Uh, he's oh, actually yes. a, you know I, if you know. Oh him, yes,
0: yeah. You watch your you gotta watch your watch with that guy.
1: Very much so but uh, I've seen him lecture before and he talks a great deal about the psychology of that. So for example, um, standing next to someone to get close enough to them to pick their pockets. Mm-hmm. How do you do that? Uh, he talks about eye, uh, eye contact. If I'm standing straight in front of you and I look you in the eye and then I move to the, beside you but still maintaining eye contact, that feels weird. Mm-hmm. You've just breached my bubble. That feels a little odd. But if I make eye contact with you, break eye contact look at the audience and then step next to you that feels much more safe. I've let you inside of my bubble now. Um, when I would do strolling magic at restaurants, what I it, the whole thing was an applied psychology course at that point because people will stand in groups mm-hmm. and because they're turning to face to talk to one another. So as a magician, how do you politely kind of breach that barrier? Because I can't go, hi, excuse me. Hi, everyone stop talking. I'm going to do a magic trick for you. <laughs> That's just a jerk thing to do. Right. So how do you kind of breach that? realm there one of the things that I used to do is I would carry around um, a a fire wallet Uh, it's a magic prop to it's it's a wallet where you can strike it and there's flint inside of it and it'll look like it's on fire Mm -hmm. Uh, and I would drop the wallet on the floor and Mm -hmm. I'd walk past them this is an idea from David Stone great magician as well and I'd walk close to them and I'd kind of kneel down I go sorry excuse me and I reached down to pick up the wallet I go sorry guys is this did someone drop a wallet? Oh, and everyone turns to look at you and go, Oh God. And they look and pat, and I open the wallet and it lights on fire. I was <laughs> <laughs> like, Oh, what the fuck? And then I close it and go, Oh, sorry. I'm the house magician. Now everyone's like, Oh my God, you scared me. That was so cool. I'm like, oh, that's pretty. Do you want to see another one? Like, oh, sure. So now you have breached that gap without interrupting or getting in anybody's way. So there's a lot of little psychological bits just to make it okay to start doing things. And then once you understand that and how humans behave and how humans interact with one another, that's when you start to slip in a little bit of trickery to create miracles.
0: So having said that, that because that is just so clever, How long? how long have you studied psychology for? Or how much study of psychology have you done? Because clearly you have a very, very good understanding of human psychology
1: A great deal of time. So I, (laughs) so magic to me, I always said it was the greatest applied psychology course you could ever take Mm -hmm. uh, because you're dealing with people and perceptual manipulation at that point. You're you're understanding how people perceive things in every way, shape, and form. When I uh, got to college, I went to the University of California, Irvine. I majored in psychology and social behavior. So it was very much an advanced course in what I've already, so in many ways, I would go to class and learn oh, that's what I've been doing the whole time. I just didn't really get what that meant. Um, Psychologists refer to something called a dyactic gaze, um, to where basically if I'm looking at something, you'll look at it. magicians know that just out of basic misdirection. If I put something in my hand and I look at it, you'll look at it too. Mm -hmm. And then when I show that it's empty, that gives me permission to kind of do things outside of that. But psychologists refer to other things. In mentalism, there's techniques called cold reading to where it makes it seem like I know a lot about you. Mm -hmm. Um, This has been studied by psychologists for a great deal of time. So things like confirmation bias or fundamental attribution errors and how all that comes together. There was a great story I saw. um, (laughs) Actually, one of my professors inadvertently saw me at the Magic Castle. (laughs) I was doing a week and I was still going to classes and he, I think we were doing, I think it was social psychology. And then he came and saw me at the castle doing mentalism and then the next day in class goes, <laughs> so I met someone the other day and we kind of talked about it of like what I was doing and why it worked and, and things like that. So it's been really my whole life it has been dedicated to this in some way, shape and or form um, but really coming to pass as to what it is. And I'll give you a great story actually. There was a, I forget his name, but it was a horse <laughs> this is going to sound weird, uh, but it was a horse who could apparently do math, and this blew people away. This is almost a hundred years ago. This yeah, it was a horse that could supposedly do math, and everyone was stupefied by this because what they would do is they would make a chalkboard and they'd write like two plus two, and they'd hold it up to the horse, and the horse would start to stomp, and it would stomp four times. Wow. And everyone- what? And they would do just basic arithmetic, but it'd be like seven plus three. And he would stomp ten times and audiences would cheer and go crazy. And it wasn't until behavior, a behavioral psychologist, people like Thorndike and B.F. Skinner, who mm-hmm. talked about like classical conditioning, realized that the horse learned to just keep stomping. So what, how they solved this is they put blinders on the horse so the horse couldn't see. Wow. couldn't see the problem, but they would say the problem or they would show it to him and then blind the horse but the horse would just keep stomping.
0: Okay. And would just
1: keep going. The horse would stop when the audience clapped. (sighs) And the audience clapped when it got to the right number.
0: Wow. So they'd say
1: two plus two is four. Uh, And the horse would stomp four times. But once it got to four, everyone would go, that's amazing, and then start clapping. So the horse would
0: stop. (laughs) Really?
1: We kind of tricked ourselves there. And human beings are narrative beings, so we like stories. So that's a very appetizing story that we can latch on to so there's tons of things like that all throughout magic and mentalism just this kind of odd vaudevillian style of entertaining
0: right and speaking of like the reaction what is that is that one of your favorite parts about your show is when you do a show routine because i'm sure you have like you have a routine you do for like shows that you so maybe and then the same like same um trick is there like one trick that you just that when you're doing you're like oh this is gonna be great do you have one of those ones
1: yeah there's quite a few that I depending on the group as well. The nice thing about mentalism is it's very malleable. Mm-hmm. So you can do a lot of different things and it varies with a lot of different people. Uh, so how people think of information and what that information is, is going to elicit different responses from other people. Um, I, I once did a show for Lamborghini. Well,
0: the Lamborghini, the cars?
1: Yeah, the car company. Wow. Uh, and it was all sales. It was their sales team. So I knew for that group, In terms of sales, things like, um, well, first of all, one of the reasons I was there is because they were deeply interested in this like body language and and this kind of psychology because that a lot of sales is that. So what they would value would be um, like the value of a car or the amount of money that someone had in their pocket Mm -hmm. or things like that, as opposed to say the name of my dog that I had when I was a child. Uh, Though that is still impactful, but the setting calls for different things. So when I perform for colleges, for example, college students love, um, things that are a bit more personal so I would do things like think about the name of the first person you ever had a crush on think about the last person you ever kissed think about the name of the dog that you had as a child what was that one present you never got for Christmas Uh, things like that so it varies between the audiences but one effect that I do love doing uh and it doesn't really elicit a oh my god kind of what I call David Blaine reactions kind of what the what and people running away there's a time and a place for those things and those are great responses but I love effect um it's actually on my youtube page um in writing it's called pk touches or psychokinetic touches Uh, basically uh one person is blindfolded i touch one person and they feel it Mm -hmm. so it's an unseen connection between two people and i love that because it's what i call a slow burn it's it's the setup and the payoff are in two different places but where they align no one can really tell if i were to take a coin put it in my hand and go and it's gone. That's the reaction moment because you realize setup. It goes in the hand. Something happened. Payoff. The coin vanished. Wonderful job. But when I do this, I never say what's going to happen. People discover it along the way. And I'll often do that. And and sometimes I'll double up on it. So I'll <laughs> touch this one person. Did you feel anything? Yeah, I felt that. And they touch it on their ha- head and their hands and everything. And I'll just keep going. Or I'll touch other people, and then they still feel it. And it's not until the effect is done that people realize what happened or what occurred. So they're discovering it as it's happening in front of them. Um, and I've, I've, I've been doing that effect for a very long time, but it's almost, it's what I call a slow burn and a peripheral effect. Okay. The The effect is happening. The payoff and the resolution are in the same moment, but where that happens, no one really knows. And it happens for, different for every people. And I also don't pay a lot of attention to it. And that almost heightens it, especially Mm -hmm. in mentalism. So here's a great subtlety that I do. Uh, I'll be in the middle of a show and I'll go, uh, you, sir, in the back there, think of um, the name of your favorite teacher in high school. Think about the, okay, Uh, just imagine their name written. (laughs) I'm sorry, ma'am over here. And then I'll write something down and go, do you have a a pet? Yeah, I have a pet parrot named Steve. And I turn it around and it says, Steve. And I go, I need you to stop thinking about that. I'm trying to concentrate. And then I go back to this guy. What like that, that is way more impressive to audiences than what my initial effect was. What my initial going for is just these little nuggets uh, that I find along the way. Or if I bring someone up on stage and I need to use the calculator on their phone, but their phone's locked. I go, oh, sorry, think of your passcode. Okay, cool. And then I go to their calculator. Really? These little things of people going, okay, yeah, the calculator trick was cool. How the hell did you get the passcode? Yeah. I don't pay attention to that. That almost heightens it. It it, wow. it it brings a sense of theatricality to it that people uh, aren't really leading you down the wrong the wrong path mm-hmm. with these little breadcrumbs and then walloping you right across the head.
0: I think people undercredit music, uh, magicians because like in a, a trick like that you don't know those people and in that case you can. Get know their passcode without them telling you. That's impressive. I think people like don't understand that. Just like, oh, that's a gimmick. No, like that's a random person with a random phone. Like the like the, the the amount of like practice that's gone into that. You know, you need to be on the spot like that. Um. So, do certain audiences give you more challenges than others? For example, are college students more harder to read, harder to you know do your stuff on than maybe like a more predictable like you know salesmen who are going to be more composed, professional than college students on a Friday night. Sure. I get this question a
1: lot. Uh, And the answer is it's different with everybody. So, mentalism is very intriguing because it's this line of psychology and magic that kind of blends the two together and it's indicative on other people. So, I could do a card trick for you, and then I do a card trick for someone else. And it's the exact same thing, same pattern, same technique, same everything. And it works every time. But with mentalism, it might be a little trickier. So, for example, some people may be a bit more receptive to it or might be a little, I don't like the phrase easier to read because that implies that, like, oh, you're just an open book or, oh, you're, you're very easy to figure out. Right. Not that at all. Uh, it's everyone thinks differently. So mm-hmm. it's a matter of me figuring out how they're thinking, how they're perceiving something. And then like the analogy I used before, just being one step ahead of that. Right. So, And in many ways, um, you can almost outthink an overthinker. So for example, I, if I were to ask someone to think of, uh, think of any letter in the alphabet, And if I were to be with somebody, and honestly, it's just a feeling like whenever magicians pick audience members, if you're if you're watching this, and you go to a magic show, and you're like, I I hate magic shows, because I always get picked, they always bring me up on stage. The reason we do that is because we're just going off of a pure vibe or a pure feel of like, this just seems like a very sweet person that I would like I would talk to in just normal everyday life. So magicians aren't really thinking about like, oh, this person would be perfect. Oh, this person's not going to see anything. It's not that at all. It's, you just seem like a very sweet person who I think being a part of this would just, heighten. It would just make this a pleasant experience for me and for everybody. Uh, But if I were to get that vibe from someone of like, you're just kind of going with the flow and yeah, let's give it a shot. And I say, think of any letter in the alphabet. That's going to be trickier than if someone goes, okay, magic boy, read my mind. That guy is going to think of either Q or Z because in his head, he's gone, okay, everyone thinks of A or B or the first letter of their name. Z's like at the end of the alphabet and Q's just a supposedly a random letter that doesn't appear that much.
0: Right. But
1: since I know that, it now makes it easier. It now kind of whittles it down for me of going, okay, it's likely going to be Q or Z. To where someone's much more open to this, they're going to choose any dang letter they, they like. So right. now I'm going to have to do a little more work to get there. So it's very much dependent upon the person, dependent upon the venue, depending upon what I'm there to do. Because at the end of the day, my job is to be an entertainer. My job right. is to make the time spent together worth it and fun and engaging and memorable.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So if say when I work at colleges, for example, everyone's just there to have make memories and have a good time.
0: Right.
1: So the show is always about the audience. And that's true of any kind of magic or mentalism, especially mentalism, because it's, it's your thoughts and your behaviors. So it's always about them. My job is to be kind of like a lightning rod Mm -hmm. and take what's at what's given to me and just channel it back to them in a fun and intriguing way. Same thing with corporate dinners and for sales meetings and heck even restaurants. Everyone just wants to have a good time. My job is to figure out what I do and how that can translate to be fun and engaging, which thankfully it is most of the time
0: that's awesome. So I have a question. Cause I'm, I like, when I do these shows, I like to, you know, I like to ask questions that I know you're not going to ask, get asked a ton. So like, networking is a magician, you know, so I brought on all sorts of different people. And so how does that work? So how are you, how do you like get new contacts? You know, for example, like, I know the Magic Castle is probably just a hub, you know, cause these are all the best of the best. You're all, you know, in a room together, locked in a room talking, mm-hmm. you know, next to each other. But like, other than that, like, how do you magicians network or like book events or, you know, mm-hmm. find new venues type of thing. I've just always wondered how that works. Yeah, it's,
1: it's a big part of the business, but not one that's really talked about. Mm-hmm. um mostly when you talk to other magicians it's going to be technique based yep. how do you do the trick uh it's an entirely different beast as to how do you get the gig to then go do the trick for people mm-hmm. uh, so networking at least for me probably 80 percent of my work comes from word of mouth
0: mm-hmm.
1: meaning i saw you at this event my husband's turning 50 would you come and do his birthday sure mm-hmm. when i do that oh my wor- I'm a part of the HR department of my company. We're trying to do like a big end of the year thing for our quarter, would you come and do it there? Sure, and it just kind of networks from there. So I always operate under the notion of every show you do is an audition for the next show because you never know who's in your audience and you never know what's gonna come of it. For example, when I worked for Lamborghini, that came because one of the higher ups of the company just happened to go to that restaurant that night and I just happened to go to their table Wow. And I did a trick for them and he was with his son and I did a trick and I gave him like a, I fused two cards together and I gave it to him. Uh, another great example in terms of networking, I do a, a trick. It's rather well known. It's called the anniversary waltz mm-hmm. where two people sign playing cards. They hold them between their hands and then the cards fuse together. Wow. it creates this impossible object that they, and I give it to them. They can keep it. I do that trick a ton, especially like in, in strolling settings. If someone's on a first date, that's fantastic because they now get this souvenir of like oh it's your name and mine Do you remember uh-huh. that i work i did this for a, a company mixer and i later interned for this company but uh, i show up and i did this trick for them and i didn't know who these people were i later showed up and i got an internship this is when i was in college got an internship with this company and when i was working there the cfo the chief financial yeah. officer goes come into my office and i'm thinking oh no <laughs> i go into his office and pinned on his board right behind him is that card i did it for him and the ceo of the company i didn't know these were just two great right. two- and he pulls it off and he goes that you did this right and i go yeah and he goes, the, I, the, I use this as a talking point in my meetings. So when I meet with our like, cause the company is also affiliated with companies in Japan or he, wow. he needs to talk to people. He'll bring this and show it to them. It's like, this is super cool. There was a magician and it was me and I, I didn't know this guy and he did this and it was insane. And I still don't know how it works. So he's like, I use this as a talking point. Wow. Never ever know who you're going to affect or who you're gonna do this for or what it's gonna mean to them. I've had people that same effect come back a year later at that same restaurant going, it's our one year anniversary and you, we still keep, that was on our first date and we still keep it. It's in our like little hope chest. So you never know what you're gonna do and what kind of impact it's gonna have on people. But I'm sorry, back to original networking. So 80% is that. Uh, Probably the remaining 20% would either be social media. So folks like yourself reaching out to me on Instagram. Sometimes, honestly, like working with the castle is great. It's a beautiful feather in your cap because you can now go from magician to award-winning magic castle magician. Yeah. It adds a few more words and it, and it really boosts your uh, uh, your credibility there. Sometimes mm-hmm. people will contact the castle and say, I'm looking for someone like this. Do you have any recommendations? And they'll send that out to magicians who they know. And the remainder is references. So uh, obviously with the pandemic, it's been very different. Magic has gotten a huge hit from this because live events, trade shows, corporate events have all subsided. So we've transitioned to virtually. Mm-hmm. But even before that, and even still now, uh, if the workflow is a bit much for us to handle, we'll refer out. So I have a list of m- a few of my Magic buddies who I've performed for with y- for years, that if I get an inquiry going, hey, I want you to come and perform at my wedding, it's this Saturday. Uh, well, I already have a gig that Saturday. I can't make it. But here's three names of dynamite magicians that, I work, that I've that i worked with who may be available. And now my buddy John has okay. a gig. Right. And equally, if John can't do one, he'll refer out to me. And I go, okay, I'll step in and do that. So it's, this, it, it, it's a self-feeding cycle of every show you do, you try to do the best that you can, not only to be entertaining, but also you never know who's in the audience. That's and true. it's going to potentially hiring you next.
0: That's true. And uh, I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about virtual magic and how that's, how has that impacted um, magicians? I mean, there are different types of magicians, you know, there's like silent magicians, you know, people like Shin Lin, for example, where he could probably do it pretty easily virtual, you know, he just needs a camera, but there's some where you need the audience. For example, mentalism is probably very hard to do virtually. It can probably be done, but it's a lot more difficult than if I'm sitting next to you, I'm sure, you know, so how has it impacted just the magic industry or you, you know, how have you, or you, do you do virtual? virtual shows now, I'm assuming? I do,
1: yeah. So virtual magic has been a beautiful challenge. Uh, It's a beautiful monster in the best way I can describe it. Uh, It has been a remarkable creative challenge because it's forced now all of us to be on the same level playing field of going, okay, we have people in their own homes, not even in the same room. Can we still amaze them? And can we still do things without them actually being physically present? And mentalism is actually a very nice, conduit to that because mentalism is all you need is another mind all you need is another person so a lot of it can be done verbally Uh, so for example i do a routine um a roulette style routine with staple guns oh yes i'll have four four staple guns and i load one of them and i mix them all up the audience mixes them up too and then i have an audience member pick one one two three or four whichever one they pick i staple into my hand hopefully avoiding the one that is loaded right I do that on stage and I have the person up there and I have the person come up and it's very dramatic and they put it on my palm or put it on my neck or anything. And they're the one that squeezes it. I can still do that effect virtually because in reality, all I really need is, okay, we know that number three is loaded. I'm gonna mix them up so the audience doesn't know. And then I say, Aaron, um, pick one, two, three or four. Say you pick number four, okay. Oh, thank goodness, I'm safe. So it's the same effect, just twist it a little bit. Right uh i've also been doing a lot of um <laughs> outside of mentalism i've been doing a lot of children's hospitals
0: uh, uh, virtually
1: which is virtually which has been wonderful so virtual has really opened up i've now performed for a children's hospital in missouri and arizona and mm-hmm. nevada all of these places without ever leaving my room but done so in a way on almost a grander scale that i couldn't before i've performed in hospitals ever since i was ever since i started so that's just been a soft spot for me I love hospitals. I will do them for free anytime, anywhere. Uh, I'm more than happy to. But virtual has really opened it up because in fact, a couple of weeks ago for a hospital called Children's Mercy in Missouri, mm-hmm. they would patch me into their hospital station. So they all have TV, like a TV channel okay. that broadcasts this to all the patient rooms. So now a guy in California can set up his computer and do a show. I, there's no audience there. So I, it, it kind of kind of blues clues Dory the explorer of hey everybody i'm kind of talking to myself like one-sided yeah but now 300 children who maybe could if i were there in person who maybe couldn't leave their rooms to come and see me can now experience and be a part of the show so uh, in ways how it has drawn us back in several other ways that has opened up a huge world to us that wasn't there before So it's it's really been a, like I say, a beautiful monster. It's given us a lot of obstacles to come over, but it's also opened up a whole new world of possibility.
0: I agree with this pandemic. I think people don't realize that like people like these, like what you and I are doing right now, like that this is possible because of it. And people are like, I think people don't realize that the, if you just reach out, the worst someone can say is no. And that with virtual, now your networks are endless, right? You can, get, you can talk to anyone now really easily. Because before, I, if you came to college, maybe I'd interview you after the show. Whereas now I could just say, hey, you know, Mark, we're going to do on join a show. You know, so have there been any things that still are a challenge with virtual? Any like specific tricks that you, like that some additions you can't do virtually? Is there any, you know, type of magic that has to be in person? There are certain
1: things that, lend themselves to being done in person or are indicative of working in person uh the biggest part of it uh, on, honestly it has very little to do with the actual technique of magic it just has to do with the interpersonal connection with people okay. uh, one of my favorite magicians of all time his name is david williamson fantastic performer but the biggest reason you go to see a david williamson show is because it's david williamson You don't really go to see. Oh, I I hope he does the needle trick, or I hope he does the thing with the rope. He'll do those things, but you go because it's him. Mm -hmm. It's he's hilarious, and he's dealing with people, and he brings people up on stage, and kind of the banter goes back and forth, and he's going off script, and he's improvising a lot, and it's just a zany, fun time. Uh, That's the and I have to I analyze myself in that way of going once you take everything away, what's left. And I think that's a very good benchmark for every performer of going, if my hands were broken tomorrow and I just couldn't do it, but I could do some things,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: would it still be at the level that I would like it to be? Not because the technique of what it is, I could do a trick and it plays okay. David Copperfield could do a trick and people are weeping. Mm -hmm. So it it is the exact same effect. So it's all about presentation and personality. So that has been a big drop-off virtually is... Yes, more people can see it, but there's a whole other element of a tactile experience with people that is very challenging. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know some friends who are comedians who that is a very big part of it because almost all of stand-up comedy is a relationship with the audience. Exactly. If your cameras are off or everybody's muted, not only is there no applause now or any laughter, so you don't know if this is working or not, but you're also missing this key element of we're all inhabiting the same space and experiencing this in the same time. Um, and even some of the best moments even in my own shows happen in an unplanned way right. um, if, if I'm working in like a comedy club or something if uh, a, a waitress walks by during a point of the show or something or says something or someone in the uh, back of the audience shouts out or says something or does something just there, there's a responseness there's a reaction to it uh, that's always positive and good that you can kind of glean from to where if it's only virtual now that is to say that affects performers like me you mentioned someone like shin lin virtual in my eyes would be almost unaffected by that because his show is very i call it eye candy it's very this very right in your face it's beautiful it Mm. looks great oh yeah. very much a feast for the eyes it is a it is very much that oh yeah performers like david williamson or myself or to where almost talking isn't you have to do that. So for example, mentalism, a big shortcoming is it's difficult to do in other countries. Uh, meaning if I don't speak the language, it can't be tricky to, whereas Shin Lim does have a universality to him mm-hmm. because it, it, magic is a universal language in the fact of it's visual nature. But when you start to do things like mentalism, for example, look into a book and think of a word. And I tell you what word that is, um, if I don't speak the language, A, it's going to be difficult to give that instruction and B, right. I may not even know what the heck you're thinking about because you're thinking in a different language. So so there's certain roadblocks to to kind of understand and overcome, but that's just a part of the creative process.
0: Right now, I, I don't know if this is, this is a genuine question I have. Can mentalism be done silently? So is someone like Mishin Lam or like you know, Teller from Penn and Teller, for example, like he's, they're, both, they're both silent on stage, at least. Could mm-hmm. mentalism be done in, or parts of it, probably not a whole trick, because you have to ask them, hey, what's this? But are there certain aspects that you could do in silence if you really wanted to? Yes. Okay.
1: There, there certainly are. And there's certain uh, elements and subtleties that I do to where it is done silently. Uh, it's, it's very tricky to do, but it is possible. Mm-hmm. So in, in terms of it being done silently, there's actually a great effect out that's been marketed. It's called the silent treatment to where you walk out on stage, you don't say anything, but you have flashcards mm. and you kind of to flip through them and it kind of walks someone through a trick and you go at one says, like, uh, think of a card. Do you have one? Good. And you keep <laughs> flipping through until the very end, you realize why you haven't been talking this whole time is because there's a card in your mouth and you take it out open it up and it's the card they think we're thinking of right beautiful effect but that's one that can be done without speaking so you do have to have Mm -hmm. a conduit of communication because there is a process there but it is nonetheless possible uh mentalism is very much with thoughts and ideas so it is possible to visually represent an idea which has been a personal obsession of mine is how do you take something that at its core is think of something it was that right yep and at at its very core that's what 90% of mentalism is not all of it but that's a fair majority so how do you make that theatrical and make that play so one of the things that I would do is I would invite someone up on stage and I'd say um, I don't know think of um, a a number up to a thousand or now think of uh, the name of someone you know great uh stand here and i'd stand on the other side of the stage go i'm gonna make some uh i'm gonna say some statements if they're correct take a step towards me okay i'll go great uh this is a female and they take a step and i go this is uh, your best friend from school take a step you've known them for 10 years take a step until they're right here and then i go if i'm right give me a high five their name's beth give her a round of applause it's the same effect but that translates to hundreds of people because the confirmation is nonverbal to whereas if they just went, uh-huh,
0: right.
1: I might hear that, but no one else did. True. So it's depending on the venue and where you're at of how to kind of dress it. That's I so- it's possible to do mentalism silently it's just very hard.
0: <laughs> I can really imagine. And it's cool too. Like as magic's progressing, have you have you noticed that it's changed? You know, now there's these magicians that do these fantastic, like digital, you know, you're getting like video and stuff, all these types of elements in the shows, you know, with like iPads and things and stuff. You know, do you think that's where magic's gonna be moving toward? Do you think more? Or you think that's still gonna have that, you know, original, real hands-on like deck of mm-hmm. cards? You know, like you can't digitize a deck of cards, you're gonna have like a paper cards. You think that's gonna stick around? Or do you think that technology will?
1: I think technology certainly has a place in magic, but it will never never replace what has worked time and time again. Uh, In the same way that effects that were done, in fact, the cups and balls is considered one of the greatest effects ever in magic. There's hieroglyphics of that trick being done on pyramid walls. On every human culture across the world, there is documentation of that particular effect being done. And there's a reason that it works is because it, hits almost everything that's possible in the realm of magic there's vanish transposition transformation uh, multiplication. multiplication there's, there's a lot of different penetration things uh, cups going through one another or balls going through the cups uh, and an impossible payoff so it follows a very neat story structure and there's a reason it works so there's things like that to where you could have a robot doing that and it's it'll get it so far but there's nothing that's going to possibly get past the human interaction. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I've done in response to technology is in many ways, it's helped me kind of think our way out of methods. So oftentimes when I do tricks or something, and I give someone a pad of paper and I go uh, here, draw a picture. Mm-hmm. And I give them a marker and they draw a picture and they hold it close to themselves. And I go, okay, think about it. And then I duplicate the picture. It's called a drawing duplication. Very, very old concept. I've had people come up to me after the show going, Oh, it's one of those Bluetooth pens. Right write something and it like digitizes to an iPad and then you can just peek at it and then know what the drawing is because those exist so my way around that is instead of a pen I'll give them a golf pencil oh wow and then I'll let them keep it so now that method's out of the water so in many ways technology has helped in terms of it makes things that were once impossible very possible in a much cleaner way but it also I know that my audiences understand that so if I go backwards to the way that it was originally done in like the 1800s, that is now almost way more impressive because, well, it was just a golf pencil and a piece of paper. <laughs> if it wasn't draw this on your phone and then lock your phone, because that can be hacked. And then right somehow like there's a whole network of things. It's just way more, again, that process is very streamlined using very simple props. So the I'm... props that I use in my show are intended to be very, very simple. They're things like, Sharpie markers and a drawing pad that I got at Kmart and golf pencils because it inherently brings, okay, if you can do this and it just looks like nothing, that's almost way more impressive than if you were to do it through a technological base. Um, I'll give you a great notion. This is a great example of magician thinking and non-magician thinking. Uh, There's an effect called the tossed out deck. Very popular, very common. I do it in my show. You take out a deck of cards, you rubber band them, You toss them into the audience. You say, flip through the deck and think of a card. Mm -hmm. And four people do that. Everyone stands up and you go, okay, four of spades, king of diamonds, nine of clubs, and the two of hearts. And everyone sits down. You got all the cards correct. Beautiful effect. I still do it. It wasn't until I went to college that I figured out what I was doing wrong. Because I was in a statistics course. And the professor said, how many different, how likely are you to pick a king of clubs out of a 52 deck of cards? So one in 52. he goes how about five decks of cards and we would use it as an example of how to statistically how likely are you to get that so we had a bunch of decks of cards for the class so he dumps them out of a box and there's a bunch of cards and they're held together by a rubber band and then he tosses them out to the students and my mind exploded because anytime I did that people said oh it's a trick deck right when he did it and when I started doing it this other way, what I would do is I would take out a deck in a box, take it out of the box, put a rubber band around it, and then throw it into the audience. Supposedly to keep rubber band to keep the deck together. So right. it doesn't yeah, so throw. I missed that step. If I take it out of the box, people think it's a trick deck. If I just reach into my pocket with a deck of cards with a rubber band already around it and just don't pay any attention to it and then throw it into the deck, that now is a miracle. Because that's how non magicians treat playing cards. Magicians are very guarded in how we, because magicians do have very expensive gimmicked cards or oh, yeah. designer decks. So we take good care of them. We put them in boxes and we put them in clips and everything. But if I go to a show and I take a card out of a deck out of a clip and I put it out of the box and it's very fancy and it doesn't look like the cards that I have in my junk drawer that have okay. been there forever. I'm going to be inherently suspicious. There may not be any gimmicks there, but I'm still going to have my, my alarms up, and that's not good. So now I almost go backwards in terms of advancements, like you say, in technology or advancements in just how things are. I go backwards because if I just take out a... I almost always use red bicycle cards. Oh, yeah. Because they're the most common deck of cards on the planet. Mm-hmm. I guarantee if you're watching this right now and you go look in that junk drawer in your kitchen, you're likely going to have a deck of bicycle cards. in it. Exactly. It's <laughs> common in North America, the most common kinds of cards. So I use those because when I bring them out, people are in inher- their alarms don't go off because like, oh, it they- they just looks like what they are. And especially if I have them rubber banded, when I do that effect and I throw them out, there's now no alarm bells going off because that looks like what people do with cards so and that's a big hurdle for magicians we're so used to magical thinking right that to do it for people we have to almost unlearn a (laughs) lot of things to make it applicable
0: oh I bet I I think it's funny it's funny I'm sure you've heard weird ways that people think you're doing it when you're doing a a mental simple mentalism trick with a pen and paper and people I think there's there's all this like earpieces and this is it you're like dude I'm like walking around a restaurant there's no like we don't I'm not looking at like another monitor like we're like you know know, I love one thing like I do see like the simple like you know the slight hand trick and people like what are you doing or it's a rig back I'm like it's not it's I pulled it out of my pocket but I do find it interesting that I thought it'd be the opposite of way around that. If you pull the deck out of your pocket with rubber bands, people will be like, oh, there's something wrong. Like that, because then you would have had to preset that. Versus mm-hmm. if you're taking it out of the box, I would think that it's not preset. So mm-hmm. I think that's interesting. Like things like that, that you'd have to think of.
1: It's the little things, your audience, and I say this to every performer I meet, your audience will teach you more about magic than any book, any magician, any DVD, any download, anything will ever teach you ever your audience will teach you how to do it. And the only way to do that is to get out and perform and for do it for real people. So there are things that I do that for years, I thought I was doing it the proper way, but it just wasn't getting the response that I was looking for. It wasn't getting that like, Oh my goodness. And it wasn't until I started to listen to my audience and what they were thinking and then start to meld it into that, that it started to make sense and it started to get those responses. Uh, Even things like timing, but again, I I tend to ramble, Uh, but things like rubber banding a deck to make it look normal. That I never, I would never read that in a book and just left to my own devices, I would never see that. Uh, Which like the most important people in my development as a performer are the people who don't look at magic ever. So I have friends who aren't fans of magic. They're not magicians, but they know I do magic. I will run, if I'm working on something new, I'll run it by them and go, what do you think? Because A, they're going to be honest with me. B, if it gets by them, I know it's good. And C, they'll go, that was weird. Or like, why do I need to do that? Or, because there'll be things that I do that to me make sense of like, okay, maybe um, uh, I I have a list of a hundred places on my phone in the notes app. And you're going to pick a number between one and 100. And, but I can predict what number you're going to pick and what the place is. Cool. That looks great. And I'll show it to them. And I'll go, OK, here's 100 places on my phone. And they go, why, why do you have 100 places on your phone? <laughs> True. And I'm like, no, 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 That's not, the, the trick is this. But it, all I see is the trick. But they're going, who the hell has a notes app of 100 places <laughs> that are all different? And like, who does that? And why right. does that matter? But that's huge because if I go up to people and do that, they're going to think that. And now it inherently goes, well, that's weird. So this must be a magical thing. Right. So now for example, I do an effect like that where I have the notes on my phone. Uh, it will be um, the names of movies. So I'll, I'll have like the top 100 movies on there and I'll predict what movie they're going to choose. Uh, I'll say, um, do you ever go to Netflix and you're looking through, there's thousands of things on Netflix, but you can't pick something to watch. <laughs> We've all done that. Oh. I've fix that problem. I went to Google and I downloaded the top 100 movies ever, ever, just the top 100. So when I'm bored and I want to watch something, I just pick a number or roll a pair of dice and go, I don't know, 14, and then go to 14, whatever movie that is, that's what I watch. It's a way of taking the choice out of it. It's fate. It just kind of finds its way and I don't have to make a choice. You're going to do something similar to that. Think of a number between one and a hundred. And now I'm into the exact same trick of pick a number. I predicted what movie you'd see. Right. But it doesn't feel weird that I now have this notes thing and it feels more organic. Right. Again, the whole process of magic is taking something that is inherently difficult, Mm -hmm. making it look like nothing's happening to then make it impossible.
0: Right as somebody who's not very in tune in magic i i'm I'm very aware of magic i try i like to learn how certain things because i I just like to see like oh this but that's what is important to me i like the stories to figure out the lead-in i I think that's what you guys call it right for example that the i need to get this hundred this this list of 100 things to my audience but i don't know how and i just it's it's inspiring to see how they do that because that's really difficult to do to like get like give credibility like who has 100 things on their phone you know but you're like well i have a problem to solve like that's that's almost the hard part, I think, is, you know, because you can do the trick, but, like, people have to believe, like, what, what's relevant? Like, we're standing in a field. Like, why why are you just, like, have a deck of cards in your pocket, you know, type of thing? And that's, that's got to be something. I, for probably
1: eight years now, I teach theater and improvisation to high school students. Uh, and I've been doing it virtually as well. Uh, but when you do these improv shows uh, if any of you have ever seen improvisation before they're based on suggestions so you know mm-hmm. we're going to do a scene for you here now i need a suggestion of something that begins with the letter m or give me a place anywhere in the world a relationship between two people and that's what you base the scene on i didn't realize this till probably four years into being an improviser of going i'm doing the exact same thing in mentalism i'm standing on stage and going someone anywhere give me a random thing except all I'm doing is saying, don't say it out loud. I'll do that. It's, it's almost the exact same interplay. But improv taught me a huge thing about making mentalism theatrical, because a lot of people think mentalism is really boring. And it is. I'll be completely honest, it really is, because it feels like a ton of process to get to a payoff for something that's no more than a puzzle meaning if I predicted a number that you were thinking of, but the whole process was, uh, think of your age, now double it, now subtract five, now take your dog's age and add it to that, and then divide by four, think of that number, it's seven, right? Yeah. Well, that's not really impressive because you clearly just went through some mathematical formula to get to this outcome.
0: Right.
1: I don't know what that math formula is, but I at least know that's what it was. So yeah, mentalism can be very boring, but improv taught me a great deal about how to make it interesting because in an improv show, it's just people on stage doing things for people in the audience. But how we get that is that interplay with the audience. So um, for example, I'll do a thing if I need to get someone at random. Um, People are very aware that stooging is a thing. Oh yeah. Going to someone and being like, hey, I'm doing a show later. Can you just think of this and help me out? Okay, great, here's 20 bucks. And then in the show, I can go, you, sir, your name is Charles. Yes. Oh, wow. That's a miracle. But I just asked him to do that. People are very aware of that. I don't do that. Never have, never will. But I'm aware audiences think that way. So I need to think outside of that. InBob taught me a great thing of how do you randomly find people. They would do a, a game on stage to where we invite a random audience member up. So what they do is they take a balloon, they blow it up and then play some fun music, bop it into the audience, and go, when they keep the balloon in the air. When the music stops, whoever catches it, you're going to come up on stage. So mm-hmm. now the audience is going nuts and they're popping this balloon and then the music stops and someone grabs it and you go, you, sir, come on up. That's way better than going, uh, you there in the back with the hair. Right. Way better. And it completely eradicates the idea of, I could have known this person was going to come up on stage. Right. So little things like that, that you pull from different, elements of your life can feed into this that makes it way more impossible but also way more organic right because that's what it's supposed to look like it's supposed to look like someone on stage who has an extraordinary ability who's able to somehow just poke around inside of your head and it's a wonderful kind of entertainment
0: now do you ever look at shows like like pen and tell us or things like that for inspiration to get because those i i believe that you have to create the trick that you're performing so do you ever look at that to, to see like new tricks because or like new ways people are doing it as a mentalist have does that is that like what magicians do sometimes Is they find, kind of learn from each other like oh i like the way you did that or like Over how did you I'm do six. that but i do it this way mm. big time
1: big time so i love shows like pen and teller Us. i've had a couple of friends uh that have gone on the show and have fooled them kevin lee he was a junior uh, along with me uh, i think frankie's going to be in the next season but i Love that show because I look at it in a different light. Mm-hmm. Basically, and people who aren't magicians look at it going, Whoa, that's cool! Like, it's just that that's an interesting effect. But when you're a, a magician, you're looking at it through very different eyes. So, I oftentimes don't even look for methodology of like how the trick worked. I look more as to that enter in an entertainment venue made way more sense than a great example is an effect called the chop cup. Uh, it's a very old trick, but it's basically a, a cup and a ball. Ball vanishes, appears under the cup, goes through the ball. There's a lot of different phases to it, but it's basically a ball and a cup. Okay, like, like, like it, it, it's all right, but no one has... Because these cups, they look like goblets. No one has this cup that is meant to be upside down. Cups are meant to hold liquid. So when I see a magician walk out on stage going, here's a trick with uh, an empty Pringles can and a tiny little baby potato. It's the exact same trick. He's doing the chop cup, the same technique, the same everything, but it looks way different and it does not feel weird. It doesn't feel like a magic prop and it plays much, 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 much better. So I love watching shows like that or like um, Justin Wilman's Magic for Humans. Beautiful, beautiful show. And again, kind of harkens to what I'm talking about. It's magic for humans, magic for real world people. And Justin Wilhelm is a brilliant innovator in that way. Um, shows like that, David Blaine was kind of the first to really kind of, not almost demystify magic, but kind of take it out of this standing on stage with the top hat and I pull a bunny out of the hat and take it into the streets. He invented something called Street Magic. It's very much just magic done in a very seemingly impromptu way. Okay. So, yeah, I love shows like that, mainly just as inspiration of like, never thought of doing it like that.
0: I think what's cool. You mentioned David Blaine. I think a lot of people don't realize, obviously he does like sleight of hand and whatnot, but a lot of the things he does, he just, he genuinely does. Like there's no like trickery. Like some of those tricks are just genuinely done. Like swallowing frogs and stuff. Like there's no sleight of hand. I'm pretty sure he does it. And like, that's, that's impressive. You know, people just, like I said earlier, like people undercredit magicians for the things you do. Cause sometimes we, you, People would think it's gimmick, and it's genuinely just done. Like, and I think that's great. Now, what is your thoughts on shows where the, um, you know, they give up the tricks? So there's, I forgot what it's called. It's like greatest tricks Revealed. There's like a show. I forgot. Yeah, that the magic. magician. yeah. You know, what is your like, cause those are really, those are like core tricks, you know, that there's different variations of but Those are like the base ones that I know a lot of magicians use. Mm-hmm. So does that challenge you guys, you know, now that, you know, the public can see things like that and you're like, oh no. And I honestly, I love it. So exactly.
1: for two reasons, one, it breathes in, it, it often will inspire people into magic. So I remember seeing shows like that when I was a kid and being fascinated by it, of going, oh, this is okay. Like I, I'm, I'm learning about this thing that the whole point, many people ask, how do you get new magicians if the whole point is to keep it a secret? That's a valid argument. Okay. Like how, how do you learn something that no one's supposed to talk about? So it can be challenging. So shows like that are great to inspire new magicians. But I love it when audiences watch it because you're now controlling, not controlling their thinking, but you're guiding their thinking mm-hmm. into something. So I might watch that show and they go, um, here, here's how to do the trick where um, you, a mind reading trick for example, you pick a card and I tell you what cards you're thinking of. Here's how you do that trick. You have a deck of cards where all of them are the same and the audience is gonna go, oh, I know how to do that trick. So now when I go on stage, And I go, uh, here, pick a card. I'm going to tell you what cards you're thinking of. They're going to go, oh, I know know how to do this. All the cards are the same. And I go, before we start, all the cards are different, right? And they're going to go, wait. And then I still do it. Now they're going, damn it. Have the, okay, fine. That's a very simple premise, but it allows me to track and go, this is how audiences think things are done. All I have to do is think one step beyond that, and now the whole thing's blown. Right. So if they, this is how you cut somebody in half, and and you put them in a box and everything, and there's a secret trap door that they go onto the stage. So they're never ever in the box. Okay. Well, I just think of a different method to do that,
0: right. and now
1: the integrity of the effect is still there.
0: Right.
1: So if anything, it promotes people's interest in magic. Heck, Penn and Teller do that.
0: Yeah, they the do.
1: The Penn and Teller show. They'll yeah. tricks in their show, mm-hmm. and for a while, people were like, "Whoa, whoa, 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 whoa! Why would you do that?" But in many ways, the secret is way more interesting than the actual effect. Right. Like, and honestly, that's where I think the intrigue and magic comes from. And that's why people think it's so fascinating, especially the things that I do, like with mind reading. Yes, I'm able to do that is impressive enough, but what the heck are you doing to even get there? Like that, if I, oh man, if I could figure out how to do that, I could tell when people are lying or not. I could tell the password to someone's lock that they've forgotten, I can do that to open it up and set their bike free. There, there, there's a lot of different, there's an applicability to it that I think is very enticing to people. So that's why I like when I perform for colleges or something, oftentimes I'll lecture afterwards right. uh, on that's psychology nice. students. ago go, this is the psychology behind what I'm doing. Maybe not revealing how the trick actually works, but giving you an inclination of what to look for and kind of how this comes from and where this comes from and and this kind of intriguing backstory so i'm all for it if if people want to talk about how an effect works or how it kind of comes to be um, mainly because it provides just a challenge for us as magicians to think outside the box a little more
0: right you you pose a great question that i i I genuinely i don't need to go to very specifics but where do non-magicians learn the magical stuff Mm -hmm. you is there how does it work?
1: Yep. So there's a few different ways of going about it. Um, how I started, this was, I began magic at the dawn of the internet era. Okay. Meaning magic on the internet didn't really exist when I was like 10 or 12. So I learned mostly from books. Okay. So I would go to the library, I would read books, and they would have methods in them. So there are magic books that magicians write, publishing the secrets to their effects. Um, heck, I've, i publish tricks that i've created they're on a site called penguin magic you can go and download them and learn how to do these tricks so there is now a vast network or like a marketplace of magic and the internet has drastically changed that so now there's sites like vanishing ink magic or penguinmagic.com or theory11 that their whole premise is we're here to teach magicians and you can download lectures and you can download buy props that will do that will help you do the effects or dvds or videos and things so there are resources out there a lot more than when i was young or when i was first starting out uh, a big thing that i would do would be i would watch videos of magicians mm-hmm. and then just try and figure out how i would do it so i for example there's something in sleight of hand called a card force oh, yeah. a sleight of hand technique to where i can get you to pick a certain card i didn't know that existed i just saw a magician take a card and i could tell you what it was and i went that's cool now if i well okay i want all of them to be different so i would need to do something to make sure they take that one so if i do this and i and it took a while but i figured out a way to do that and i thought i was a genius because i <laughs> discovered this thing this way to do this until i found magic books and talked to other magicians and they went oh yeah that's called forcing and there's literally hundreds of ways to do that better than what I ever came up with. Right. But at the time I'm going, oh, I, I kind of stumbled upon it without realizing it was a thing yet. Right. So, th- but to answer your original question, yes, there's resources on the internet. You can go to sources like penguinmagic.com, Vanishing Ink Magic, um, Theory 11 is great. All of those are great resources to find effects and, and of all skill level too. Uh, it's not just like the big stage illusions and stuff, it's even just the basic what you have around your house. Right. Great places to start. But also, I always tell magicians this if you want to hide something, you put it in literature okay. because nowadays people don't read anymore. Very <laughs> rarely people wrong. who are going to sit and read and dissect from a book how to do something. But if you have like the really good secrets that you want to market and like want to put out into the world. But you don't want a whole lot of people doing them yet, put it in a book because wow. very, very few people are going to take the time to do that. So if you want the really good stuff, go to books.
0: Books. You're right. I've never read a magic book and I know a lot of people haven't. So if people are watching here who, are, who may want to go into magic or think about starting, where do, you, where do you think, where would you recommend they start? Or you know, what advice do you have for someone who wants to be an aspiring magician or mentalist or in just the general magic realm? Yep
1: start small best thing i can i can say is start small oftentimes it's very enticing to see like when i first started that was the heyday of chris angel
0: oh yeah
1: it was this larger than life helicopters and do stuff and i was hooked i loved it but it was it was tricky because he's been doing this his whole life so yeah he can do things like put someone's cell phone in a beer bottle that's Mm -hmm. huge i can barely shuffle a deck of cards So start with the basics. Uh, So things like card tricks, coin tricks, just things you find around your house. If you want to get in, because there's two ways of approaching magic. I know people who do magic strictly for themselves, meaning I'll read the books, I'll go to the lectures, I'll learn all this stuff because I'm just deeply fascinated with the art, but I have no intention of performing. And that's completely fine. You can be a musician and just learn to play the guitar just for yourself and don't ever do shows. Totally fine. Magic is the same way. So you can absolutely do that. If you want to go my path, which is the path of being a performer, start with the people in your life that you trust to start to build that skill level and prepare to fail a lot. Yeah. A reason that there's so few magicians in the world is A, it's really hard. Yeah, it is. B, it lends itself to this kind of social ostracizing, if that's a word. That is. I learned more about performing magic in high school than I ever did as an adult.
0: Really?
1: Because when I'm in high school, A, people are going to be way more honest with you because they're your friends, but B, you're in the middle of math class. You're not in a stage to where you were able to set everything up ahead of time. You have to be ready at the drop of a hat
0: exactly. and
1: what's going to work for people. So you learn audience management you learn prop management and pocket management and how that all works and what effects work and what don't. And a lot, and the way to find that out, I'm sad to say, is to do it and it's fail. Right. Like any, any stand-up that you ever talk to or any performer goes, you have to suck first. Mm-hmm. just embrace that right off the bat. When you first do it, it's gonna fail, it's gonna screw up. I've over the years that I've been performing, I've had shows even still today to where it just doesn't go right. Sometimes it just fails. Sometimes you mess up. Sometimes you miss it. Sometimes someone fla- you flash and someone catches it. Sometimes people change their mind when they're thinking of things. It, right. There's a lot of different variables, but you learn how to deal with them and minimize that risk. But it's very difficult to do the impossible. But again, original advice, don't get discouraged. Start small. Practice a lot. And I don't mean lock yourself in your room for eight hours just to learn how to do this stuff. Mm -hmm. Practice often, but in a way to where you are still able to do it for people. Right. Because ultimately, mastering a technique that comes in time. It's exactly like playing an instrument. You can learn how to play the guitar and you can get all the notes in the right order, but that's not necessarily a song. Right. There's a certain human element to it that makes this how you play those notes and the the, the cadence to them and, and how like bending a note mm-hmm. to make it feel like an organic visceral song right i can learn all the notes and get them in the right order john mayer can go on stage and bring people to tears exactly so again to reiterate start small uh do it for people and have fun do it because you'll love it don't do it because you're you're, you're trying to Oftentimes people get into magic because they're either, I want to feel smarter than the people around me, (laughs) or I want to like be really impressive to people. I'll be honest. That was a big influence for me at the beginning. It's very tantalizing, especially when you're young and you're trying to find an identity. I didn't realize this till later in life, but a big part of who I was was ingrained in magic because it was this thing I could do. There weren't any other magicians my age. No one around me did magic. It It made me unique, which is great, and a great propelling point to keep you moving forward, but it can't be the only reason. Right. Uh, eventually, the word amateur comes from the word amore, which means love. So when you do something as an amateur, you do it because of just the love of the thing. Exactly. Eventually, that love becomes so great that you have to share it with other people. That's when you become a performer.
0: Exactly, I like that. Now, before we uh, go here, I two yeah. things. First of all, where can people find your magic where can they find you if they want to follow you please uh tell oh, them yeah
1: we'll plug uh so everything is under mark gibson magic so my name and what i do instagram facebook uh tiktok all the social media platforms uh just search at mark gibson magic youtube same thing mark gibson magic we'll find you everything website mark Uh, It's all the same. Just my name and what I do. And uh, feel free to drop me a line either on Instagram or on email or whatever you'd like to be. Uh, Either be for shows or if you just have general questions. So I'm always very open about the art and the craft and the science behind it all. So uh, if you're like, hey, I'm just kind of starting out, what do you think? Or I even have people send me videos going like, what what, does this look okay? And more than happy to. I want to see the art of magic elevated and have good magic out there and people really enjoy it. So yeah, feel free to, to uh, me up any- I,
0: I like that and then my second question here is would you be able to demonstrate a trick or two oh, sure. our-
1: yeah I, I really've been talking <laughs> we've been talking shop this whole time but like I should probably actually do something for you
0: yeah I'd, lo- I'd love oh, people to see your magic
1: yeah here I'll kind of tilt this over a little bit just so this stays in frame if I tilt that down aha, there they are so I often I have a, a, a studio at my house sitting at the moment but I have a studio that has all these stuff behind me uh some of the deck of cards in a wine glass, because we're fancy like that. Uh, Now, obviously, if I were to spread out a deck of cards and go, here, pick a card, that's not going to work very well, because it's virtually. So we're only going to do some of the cards. We'll get the rest of those there. We'll do it with just a bunch. And those will stay in view the whole time. Uh, I'm going to flip through these like a flip book, Aaron. I want you to just look in the deck and see a card, Okay. Mm -hmm. Just remember any one that you see. Maybe not the eight of hearts, because you've been staring at it for five and a half minutes now, so. Sounds good. Here we go. Bring them nice and close to the camera. You see those? Yeah, you can yeah, see that's those. That's perfect. All right, here we go. I'll go nice and slow. So just see a card and remember it. Got one? Yep. Okay. Uh, don't change your mind. Let me give you some quick break. And And uh, I'm going to try and find the card you're thinking of. Think about that card, whether it's red or black. Hmm. Think about whether it's... Okay, yeah. All right, I'm going to go with this one. Actually, watch. I'm going to go through these cards. Stop me when I get to yours.
0: Okay. Keep
1: going. Say hey or stop or whatever when I get to the card that you saw.
0: I would. <laughs> Hmm. Not seeing it. That's
1: oh, your card vanished from this uh this bunch here. Eric, what card did you see?
0: It was the seven of hearts?
1: The seven of hearts. Yes. That's impossible. It is? Yeah, because that's the ninth card down in that deck.
0: Huh? I'll
1: prove it to you. Watch, one, two, three, four. Five, six, seven, eight. This is the ninth card. You said what? The seven the of hearts. Seven of hearts. Yeah. Seven hearts. Ta-da.
0: What? That is uh, an example of a virtual trick, a virtual card trick. And and that is one deck. That's not those. Aren't, those aren't two decks. Yeah, that's just and in a wine glass what the heck kind of fun ladies and gentlemen mark gibson everybody thank you so Ta-da. much for joining me here and uh i'll talk to you for a minute afterwards and uh thanks for watching guys and go follow mark and uh have to do with his magical happenings stay cool thanks